Oh, Holy One and glorious Creator, we pray that you would be with us and send your Holy Spirit amongst us this time, so that in these words to come, we may hear your word. Amen. Well, those of you who've been with us the last several weeks are well aware, this month we are celebrating the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. We began by looking at the nature of communion, how communion had changed as a result of the Reformation and how that impacts our views on communion today. Then we looked at the corruption of the church, or at least the perceived corruptions of the church leading up until the Protestant Reformation, uh, and then asked ourselves the question of to what degree do we see corruptions in our church today and how can we be uh, true reflections of God's will for us in 21st century Houston. And last Sunday, we looked at the authority of the Bible. One of these key conceptions of the Protestant Reformation, the authority of Scripture, and also asked ourselves some of the pitfalls of this. Again, it's the authority of Scripture, Scriptura Sola, that has allowed for a multiplicity of Protestant denominations around the globe, as each person interprets the Bible in their own way, and that there is a need for us to be conscious of how we interpret Scripture, what lens we use, how we go about it. Today, we carry on that discussion. Today, we tackle what is probably the most significant single theological point of the Protestant Reformation. One that, especially if you grew up learning your uh, Lutheran catechisms, if you grew up in a Lutheran church, you know well. And that is the concept of justification by faith. I'd ask a poll about who actually is familiar with that term, but I'll just roll on from there. (laughs) Martin Luther uh, was someone who was going to be a lawyer. His dad, Hans, really wanted him to go be a lawyer, make good money, make good in the world, keep moving his family ahead. And actually, while uh, while he was in school for this, he was coming home, and he was coming across a, a big field. And much like this morning, as you were coming to church, there was a thunderstorm, a lightning storm. And you know, you, you look on the Doppler radar, and you can see sometimes it's yellow with, like, really intense. When it's really bad, it gets red. And if it's really, really bad, maybe it'll be a purple color on that Doppler radar. Well, this is where Luther was walking across an open field when it was purple on the Doppler radar. And if you've ever walked in an open field with that active of a lightning storm right above your head, it is terrifying. And Luther was terrified. And so like any good uh, medieval or late medieval religious person, person who was spiritual, what did he do? He turned to the saints for intercession. Specifically, he turned to St. Anne and said, if you save me this day, I will then enter a monastery and become a monk one of the most impactful oaths that anyone's made in Western history. And indeed, Luther was saved. And he then told his father, by the way, I know you paid for my education to be a lawyer, but I'm not going to be a lawyer. I'm going to be a monk instead. His father was less than enthusiastic. And Luther began his journey as an Augustinian monk. Now, near the end of his life, uh, Luther wrote his memoirs and talked about this period Um, And there are other stories, other accounts of Luther during this period. 
And even though it started off fairly well, Luther was someone who, again, tried to be a super monk, tried to be as monkish as monks could be, and yet he struggled in war with the devil. Uh, Luther would yell at the devil who was trying to torment him. You can just see him in his monastic cell, the cold stone walls around him. Uh, You have a small cot where he would sleep and his uh, monks, Augustinian monks, have it hanging on a hook as he sat there uh, virtually naked, freezing and yelling at the devil. Get away from me, Satan. It's a powerful image. And one, thankfully, that most people don't have to run into today outside of uh, a loony bin, an insane asylum. (laughs) Uh, It's not seen as being normal characteristics to be yelling at the devil in the corner. In fact, we're good congregationalists, so we don't believe in the devil. Not something we've got to focus on. Right? But this 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 is the tricky part. It's a tricky part that requires uh, truth-telling in churches. If you were to dig deep down in your soul, in your, in your personal life, ask yourself what you struggle with, what temptations you wrestle with, and you start to name them, they can haunt you. They can torment you. Maybe those tortures, uh, maybe those, 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 those torments take the form of some sort of sexual temptations. Again, if we're going to honor Augustine, we might as well start with that, an Augustinian tradition of which Luther comes out of. You're tempted to do something you know that you shouldn't do. Maybe you're in a committed monogamous relationship, but those temptations to look elsewhere are still there. And maybe they cause quite a bit of turmoil. It's a real thing. Or perhaps you, uh, you struggle with the fact that you have not succeeded in life the way you always wanted, you, you always wanted to or you always envisioned you would. You've made certain choices in your life, and now you have to live with those choices. And usually, you can just be happy about them and nod and smile, but there's sometimes when those choices start to eat you up, when there's something inside that starts to tear at you, tear at your soul. You see someone else who you knew when you were a kid, let's say, who's doing that much better, and you have to be reminded of that, and it eats you alive. Sometimes you get jealous. You know you shouldn't get jealous. This is bad. I shouldn't be angry about this. I shouldn't be frustrated with my life choices. I shouldn't be sad about being where I am, but I am. I just can't, can't shake that. Somehow it's just not quite good enough. Or perhaps you know that you shouldn't be a materialistic person. After all, you go to church. But still, you're someone who's always loved cars. And you, you, you went out and you test drove that Bentley Coupe once and you just loved the feel of that engine and you, you loved how great it looked inside and you were just like, gosh, you know, I would really love one of those cars more than anything else. And you just feel consumed with just, I really wish I had that and I don't have that. Maybe it was something else. Maybe it was some other possession that you wish you had that you don't have. Or maybe you struggle with anger. 
Most people will see you as a smiling face and a, and a good, pleasant person. But some places, sometimes, that comes out. You snap at people. Or maybe you just struggle with the limits of your own body. Your body wears you down, whether it be through chronic pain or some sort of illness. Maybe other people around you don't even know that you struggle with certain, with certain ailments, but you still do. And most of the time, again, it doesn't bother you, but when you're true to yourself and you look deep down in your soul, is it there? I really liked watching Breaking Bad. You know this show? Who here has seen Breaking Bad? Anyone? There you go. At least some people have. Breaking Bad, again, this is a show that came out, I don't know, six or seven years ago. It started, uh, and it's the main character is a high school chemistry teacher. High school chemistry teacher, uh, brilliant guy. And what's amazing about the show, especially the first season, is it takes this high school chemistry teacher and it slowly picks apart these various things that are eating up his soul. And especially by the end of season five, you see this very peace-loving, kind family man becoming a monster. And it's remarkable to see that, that transition. How his frustrated ambitions tear him apart and lead him to make bad decisions. How his care for his family actually is one of the things that leads him to make bad decisions. His anger leads him to make bad decisions. His jealousy leads him to make bad decisions. And it piles on one after another after another. It's a great study in human nature. In the last couple of weeks, there was an article that came out in Atlantic Magazine. You might have seen it, you might not have, looking at uh, anxiety levels in teenagers. Teenagers today suffer from anxiety at higher rates than uh, at any point that psychologists and sociologists and doctors have seen before. Highest rates now among teenagers of eating disorders. Of teenagers being, having this deep, deep-seated sense of self-loathing that their bodies are not good enough, such that they're willing to starve their bodies or force themselves to vomit after eating food because it's so, it's, it, it becomes such an obsession. Or high instances of teenagers cutting themselves using blades or others to actually cause physical harm because of that deep-seated sense of not being good enough, that deep-seated sense of self-loathing. Or being so crippled by anxiety that they can't actually function in school because it becomes so overwhelming. What do you do if you're a parent having to deal with children like that? You can see, you can see that, I mean, this is where you hear these stories of Luther and you're like, yes, I can see myself yelling at the devil, yelling with everything that I have in me. How does this happen? How does this carry on? Why can't we just get through this? Now, Luther tried everything at his disposal uh, at the time as a good late medieval monk to deal with his struggles with the devil. And he, by his own admission, <laughs> again, Luther, Luther was never accused of having a small ego, uh, by his own admission, he was the best of all monks. Uh, if someone was going to have one all-night vigil, he'd have three all-night vigils. Uh, if someone was go to confession once a day, he'd go to confession four times a day. The story of his confessor saying, Luther, come back when you actually have something to confess. 
Luther going on fasts or uh, intentionally exposing his body to the elements just to try and bring it under control so that he could be a good Christian. He said, in fact, his deprivations he put him through at the time were so damaging he actually had physical effects from this for the rest of his life. Because he pushed his body so hard during these times to deal with this. He was trying to figure out a way to be at peace. And indeed today, there are lots of different options we can take. Our society gives us a whole array of options of how to deal with with things, uh, many of which are very good. Uh, You've got the the Oscar Wilde approach, uh, which is the only way to deal with temptation is to yield to it. Uh, (laughs) If I only had that extra car, all would be well. Yes. Or if I only had that extra this, all would be well. Uh, Usually that's the case for a short period of time, but... I don't know if I buy Wilde's uh, <laughs> Wild's view as a permanent solution to things. But we do have great uh, support from wonderful, thankfully, wonderful psychologists, wonderful psychiatrists, wonderful groups. There's lots of great stuff that we can do in terms of meditation, uh, about trying to put good people around us. There's so many things that we can do to help make our lives better and to help deal with some of these issues that are very, very helpful. The frustrating thing is that those things never quite go away. No matter how good we can be about it, those things still linger there. They can still torture us. As they tortured Luther. Now Luther had his great insight that changed the course of Christianity in the West. uh, Apparently while he was on the toilet. (laughs) This is by his own admission. This is by his own admission. Um... Now, whether or not uh, historians say this is because he wanted to emphasize the fact that revelation can come to you in any place, or whether it actually happened while he was on the toilet, I'm not sure, but, but it was in reading uh, Paul's letters, specifically Paul's letter to the Romans, and also Paul's letter to the Galatians, an excerpt of which uh, Deborah read earlier uh, in service. And the key thing for Luther... The key point for Luther, the point that just had the scales fall from his eyes, is that he was justified, that is to say, made right before God, not by any works that he does. No amount of confessions, no amount of self-deprivations, no amount of vigils, no amount of fastings, none of those things will get him where he needs to be in terms of his relationship with God. None of them work. He reads through Paul, and Paul makes it clear that you are not justified by the works of the law, but you are justified by faith, through faith, in Jesus Christ. And in fact, the through faith in Jesus Christ can be translated just as well as the through faith of Jesus Christ, through the faith of Jesus Christ, which is the way that Luther preferred to interpret it. That is to say, he is made justified not through some sort of believing in anything, but through the faith of Jesus, Jesus' faith. What Jesus did is what made him right, nothing that he did. This is the, this is the key insight of Luther's here. He is made right by God. He is loved by God. He is in good stead with God through nothing that he does. It is purely the work of Jesus that makes it happen. And for Luther, this was such a big moment, existential moment. Uh, He was really seized by this conclusion. It, it, It took hold of his very soul. And that's what he means by faith here. Faith is not the assent of certain things. Oh, I believe something that I can't see. Faith is actually being seized by this reality that, sh- that you are loved by God, as you are. And Luther is like, once you, once you can accept that fact, once you get a hold of that fact, 
uh, not only do you never forget it, not only does it always stay stay with you, but it gives you this wonderful sense of freedom. That's the way he described it. You have a sense of freedom. When I was in eighth grade, um, back then we had a dog. Um, I think I told the story before, but it's still relevant. We had a dog, a chocolate lab, that we named Toblerone. Uh, Toby for short. And... I would go and I'd walk Toby every night between 8.30 and 9. And I didn't walk Toby necessarily because I was being a good son. I walked Toby because walking was like the time where I had time to myself. I could process things. Even now, like, walking is my favorite spiritual discipline is to walk. Uh, I wander through the streets of Montrose and people are like, who is that? <laughs> Who's that guy staring and thinking deeply about one thing or another? Well, there I was with the dog. It made it less awkward for the neighbors to see me just walking because I had a dog as an excuse to walk with. Um, but I remember walking with Toby... And I had this wonderful revelation for some... I mean, this shows you the type of person I was when I was in eighth grade. Um, I, I already had my whole life mapped out in front of me. I knew what I should do. It had been very clear. And it just seemed like this unending path of getting one carrot after another after another. And again, I was consumed with anxiety, consumed with all these other things. I remember walking the dog and having this one moment of revelation of being like, you know, maybe that's not what I need to be doing. Mostly because if God exists, if there really is a God, if there's something eternal, if, if there is the eternal presence, something that is the ground of our being, if that really is there, then maybe what the world says is, is valued is, should not be actually valued as highly. And this just really struck me in my soul. I remember crying on the streets while I'm walking Toby, being struck by this fact that if God exists, and if God's revelation is there in Jesus, then perhaps I don't need to follow this path that's been laid out for me. And in fact, maybe that's not the path I should be following. Last week at the end of the sermon, I put to you a challenge. I said Luther interpreted scripture through, through, through the gospel, what he called the good news. Uh, and his, his distinction in scripture is between gospel and law. And so my question to you is, what's the good news of the Bible? What's the good news? What is, what is that, that, that kerygma, that basic proclamation through which all the things, uh, everything else in Scripture should be interpreted? And the thing that I'm putting before you today is that for me, the good news is actually very similar to Luther's good news 500 years ago. And the good news is that God exists, which is actually a, a pretty revolutionary concept if you try and wrap your head around it, that God actually does exist, that God value, God's values are eternal, that the very nature of God is love and, and that the message that comes to us through the New Testament is that you are loved exactly as you are right now. That's the good news. And it's one thing to hear it. And it's another thing to be seized by it. To be seized by faith and actually feel it. To know that whatever it is you're going through, God exists and that you are loved as you are. No matter what trials you face, no matter what temptations you face, if you can be seized by that, if you can hear that message, if that can break through all the layers that you put up in front of it, and you can actually let it penetrate your soul, there is, in a Christian sense, salvation, healing, wholeness, peace, and yes, freedom that comes from that truth. That is the essence of what we do here and preach about on Sunday morning.
That's the essence of the classic evangelical faith in the correct sense of the term. And it's something that I hope every morning or every, every, every Sunday morning when you come here that if you need to hear that message that you can hear it in whatever form you need to hear it that day, whether it's through beautiful singing, through prayers, or through the preached word. So that as you, go, so as you leave here, you really can know that that is the truth. And you can help it change your life.